Hi, Damien. Hey, Hamish. How are you doing, man? Doing good, thanks. How are you? I'm, I'm great. I'm great. Sunny, sunny day in LA. Great. Like, what's not to love? Yeah. Yeah. So I thought a good way to kind of get in some of your techniques. Obviously, you're known for working with a lot of electronic music. Do you have any tips for blending yeah. um, electronic kind of music to all typical instruments and electronic music with more traditional kind of acoustic or rock instruments? Yeah, if there's a really, really big tip, um, and, and I actually talk to my artists about this a lot of the time. It's like, if you think about it, if you're making electronic music, you could say the metaphor is that you're making like a Pixar film. And if you're making like a live band or an acoustic or, you know, performance-based album, you could say you're making a Scorsese film or something like that. And as we know, if you go and kind of just shove some animation over the top of live action, then you get something that looks like Who Framed Roger Rabbit, um, which is fine if that's what you're going for. But ultimately, to really get them gelling, it's, it's really all about editing and about um, understanding kind of the nuances of space and time. And basically, it, it gets hyper detailed, but it's a little bit of actually moving all of the performance stuff towards the electronic kind of grid and feel and vice versa loosening up the electronic stuff towards the performances and there's no so it's it's interesting that's almost like yeah a lot more to do with the basics of kind of editing and getting all the transients and the way the kind of feel of the performances work really well together um <clears throat> and then ultimately it's almost like once they're lined up then all you're kind of mixing in your way of getting them to come out of the speakers is, is a lot easier uh, but I think, um, you know, it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's a little known secret, but I think it's, it's a lot of work and not, not a lot of people necessarily get in that deep to make it happen on that side. Um, and you know, that, that can go anywhere from like, you know, choosing right bits of drum performances that have the right feel and then kind of creating quantization templates that everything else moves toward. But then there, there's a strange thing where if you have things like arpeggiated synths and stuff like that, they don't always sound quite right if they're fully kind of pushed into a feel world do you know what i mean it's like they're, they need to be a little bit mechanical but so finding the kind of balance is always you know quite a song specific thing but yeah the secret is really editing more than uh more than eqing or compression or anything like that do you have any tips for getting the things to kind of exist in the same space uh in terms of just like acoustic space or feel like they're happening at the same time more like kind of acoustic acoustic space i guess like depth and that sort of thing or just, yeah, so they sound, so I mean, ultimately, like, once once your kind of transients are working together, like, in, in general, this isn't necessarily specifically just this question, but I'm, like, a huge, huge delay fan, more than reverbs fan. So, you know, there's, there's nice ways you can use delays and stuff like that to kind of gel things together. Uh, and then, you know, you do get a little bit into, you know, very subtle overall kind of mix bus gluing things together. But really, I find like it really, again, just comes back to editing and that kind of thing. And, um, you know, I'm really, I mean, there's some really fundamental stuff, which, which isn't necessarily like electronic music specific. But if you're having like, you know, live percussion or live drums and stuff like that, then making sure all your high passes and all that kind of thing are working well and your frequencies aren't clashing properly. And, you know, but it's almost all of those things that make it work together are kind of one step before mix stuff so even like tuning your kind of electronics in the right way and then another actually really big t uh tip is if you're programming to try to let that stuff get a little bit wild <laughs> do you know what i mean like actually get some imperfections into your programming so you know one thing i do like to do is i've got a couple of analog drum machines that i can kind of trigger 
and just just doing stuff where you're like live tweaking some stuff a little bit down the track so you just have a little bit more chaos and then i mean chaos i, I mean that just or just more kind of personality so then it, it kind of moves those over a little bit into feeling like how our performance does with kind of natural variations and all that kind of thing but otherwise yeah editing delay <laughs> and off you go do you have any favorite delays or styles of delay um i'm i'm all over echo boy basically like um echo boy was you know a, and it was actually around the time that came out like you know I've, I've been mixing kind of quote unquote in the box since like god since since the 90s before my voice broke um i used to work with a producer called guy six earth and we had one of the first mixed plus pro tool systems in the uk so we were right on the kind of vanguard of people who are doing everything in the computer um, so I've always had ways of making those delays do interesting things like way, way, way back in the day when delays had no character, I'd always have like automated EQs just moving around in your return path and that kind of thing. Uh, but definitely, yeah, when, when Echo Boy came out, that was a huge kind of watershed moment for me of really feeling the kind of textural possibilities and delay. Um, and I started using all their stuff a lot more. And if, if I have kind of overall tips for delays it's like i I've, I've spent quite a while well let's say a few years ago i very consciously kind of thought a lot more about the way i treat especially vocals and stuff like that and drums and what kind of things i use in different situations so if i have a stale style delay usage i'll have i tend to have a ton of returns always in my sessions that go everywhere from 30 to 30 seconds up to like half notes and depending on what parts going on i'll kind of I'll, I'll do blends of all the kind of different patterns rather than having like individual delay units that have multi-taps and stuff like that um so yeah i mean i've been trying to think if if you know i've, I've played around a little bit with some of the other newer things like I, I do like the uh d16 repeater i really want to check out the valhalla one but overall I've, I've also really been trying to make myself be a lot more disciplined about not having too many plugs i have a space echo that i love and actually space echo and hardware memory man like memory men <laughs> i i love loved pieces so anytime i'm like traveling and tracking i tend to actually have one of those somewhere in the chain um and yeah and then actually a friend of mine recommended me there's this delay that you can get for 30 dollars off amazon called the blue ocean which is a really beautiful kind of like make things sustain kind of delay but overall mix wise like the echo boy stuff is so insane and I, I am like really into opening up models and tweaking them and all that kind of thing if need be um so yeah but you know 90 percent of the time it's just on the studio tape <laughs> setting i was going to ask do you have any favorite styles of delay that it is on the echo boy so is it pretty much always to just the standard well, the yeah, I mean, the studio tape tends to be the one that's like when you want, it, it's a bit like your earlier question of how do you get things to stick together. So kind of that's great for like just a little bit of warmth and you use that for a bit of glue, if you know what I mean. Um, and then actually I got really into, there's a setting on there called Queek, which I use for kind of very heavy effect kind of vocal stuff. I started using it 100% wet with a zero millisecond delay on it to kind of use the distortion modes in there. Digital chorus, analog chorus. I haven't been so crazy on the Binsonet one, which I see lots of people using. Um, been using, yeah, the tube tape one quite a bit more. But it, it's kind of nice. I feel like I'm at a point now where studio tape is like the safe place. And then I have like a really good feeling for kind of what to grab otherwise. Um, and I do love that whole thing as well. You can go in and just like crank the diffusion a little bit if you just want a, a bit more space in the returns. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a few models in there. I've 
you know, have never really used the DM2 too much, uh, but I kind of heard it on something recently and was just like, oh, I've got to use that a lot more. So it is kind of interesting, you know, that there's one plug that I've been using pretty much daily for nearly a decade that I still haven't really got to the bottom of, if you know what I mean, haven't exhausted it. Have you messed around with uh, Crystallizer much? Yeah, yeah. I love that, that one. Um, it's doing really noisy remixes to just like run all your drums through it and hit record and just <laughs> cycle through stuff and kind of see what comes out the other side. Um, I do have two kind of um, pitched crystal return chains that live in my template as well and crystallizers on one guitar rigs on another. Um, so yeah, I feel like I, that one's pretty underutilized at my end as well, but like the moments where it does work, I'm, I'm really into it. I tend to not use it so much in like a straight up delay thing, but you know, just for that kind of really classic, um, there's, there's auras and, and the, the Northern lights are going off and angels singing kind of thing. I love it for that. Um, and I got to say as well, like since, uh, since sound toys did that whole effect rack thing, um, you know, there's, there's been a lot more, I, I love the fact of just having a, a bunch of things in one place. Um, so that that's opened up a lot more kind of tweaky worlds as well. Do you use the saturation distortion type plugins much in your mixes? Yeah, I think um, probably my Desert Island plugin is actually the OG Lo-Fi. Um, and I, that was a really, because, you know, going back to this time I was talking about like late 90s, that was the only kind of distortion plugin that existed in tools. And I'm really, really, really into using that a lot for kind of shaping top end as well. Uh, shaping low end. It's really interesting with that one. The, the, the big tip I have for that is literally try using like saturation on point one and the distortion between like point one and point three and just hear how it kind of just slightly pushes harmonics in one way or another. And the way you can kind of slide the anti-aliasing is really interesting as well. Uh, and then more recently, like I really, really, I'm just the world's biggest Universal Audio fan. Um, and I think once their stuff really started kicking that kind of, you know, I'd actually built, hand built a whole ton of tube outboard, valve outboard, sorry for our British friends. Um, you know, hand built a whole bunch of kind of like UAD clones and, uh, sorry, uh, LA2A clones. And uh, um, just thinking like I was going to have to have outboard you know, to make that world work. And, and I think the way that their plugs are kind of bringing that color now is I, I don't really care whether it's exactly the same as a hardware or not, but I feel like I can access a kind of a texture through them that I really love. But otherwise, you know, it's no, nothing kind of original about saying I use Decapitator quite a bit. Uh, the Culture Vulture is amazing. Uh, Thermionic, uh, the UAD one. Uh, I use quite a few amp simulation things i really like that little fender tweed thing that uad do original guitar rig i still love to pieces but like lo-fi i find is the most useful thing for mixes if that makes sense whereas the other ones i kind of tend to use a bit more for transformative stuff early in the production process just so you know every plugin that you mentioned i'm going to run your voice through for the um final oh really <laughs> amazing <laughs> do you have any techniques for recording acoustic drums if they're going to be in a more kind of electronic setting compared to how you normally would record them um i wouldn't say that i approach them terribly differently if i'm recording them with or without electronics in mind but um probably there's two really big influences that i've had on my drum recording 
One was like the one session I ever got to do with Jim Abbas. <laughs> I used to be on the same management with him for years and like worked with him very early on on a South album that he mixed and with some stuff with Uncle. But I was harassing my manager for like six years going like, buy me in on sessions with Jim. But he has a really interesting approach of trying to get the sound around the kit to be quite dry and very controlled so that you can really compress your closed mics, but then still having some bleed down a hallway or having some distant mics and that kind of stuff. So I really love that approach and the kind of um, the aggression that you can get off closed mics without it getting too washy really blends really well with kind of building stuff on top of breaks. Um, I, the other thing I'm really influenced by is, you know, I've thought a lot about the classic drum breaks that I love to sample and invariably almost all of them sound a bit weird. Do you know what I mean? So it, it's like, it might sound like the microphone was actually over on the saxophone and it's kind of like picking up the drums through some spill or whatever. So I do tend to just it sounds like a bit of a paradox. I throw up way too many microphones, but then try, and I don't overthink it in the moment, but then I try to find kind of one mic that captures as much of the kit as possible uh, to build around that. So, you know, it'll tend to be a little bit when I'm tracking or setting stuff up if the drummer is patient enough and if the drummer has um, the kind of technique to be very controlled, then we'll kind of like build the sound a little bit around you know, one particular mic. Um, there's not that many people who are who are really into that, but like I had some really good results. Actually, I produced a Temper Trap album with um, with Russ Forkus Engineering, and their drummer Toby is like really, really into kind of recording and stuff like that. So we did quite a lot of stuff of having like one mic that's kind of sat down in front of the kick drum off to one side that's running through a sans amp, and then another mic that's going to a guitar amp in the other room, and then we kind of tuned the whole kit to work through those distortions and you know then there's a lot of like pulling symbols out anything that's kind of resonating that's kind of putting in weird overtones um so that that's fun as well and then you know i, I really do love also having kits and then like triggering them more in a hip-hop where treating them much more like it's a sampled break and then just kind of reinforcing them as opposed to necessarily having like a kit playing over the top of electronics if that makes sense um so yeah but overall you know, just I just try and leave options open. And actually, one one big tip, which I could give you and your listeners, is there is a company in Montreal, I believe, called IRL Audio, which uh, was a collaboration between a friend of mine, Tyler, and uh, this guy Mark Lawson, who engineered a lot of Arcade Fire's stuff. Uh, they built, they designed and built one of those microphone splitter boxes that has a guitar effects pedal loop. There's a few of them on the market, but their one is the only one that like doesn't kill your pedals. Basically, it's like all Cinemag Transformers, really amazing single path. So I tend to travel with that a lot. And especially if I'm doing drums, it's like find one microphone that has a parallel going through all the pedals. So like I was saying, like I'll normally have like my memory man and a few other things. There's some Japanese overdrive that actually Temper Traps Guitar Tech linked me up with. I have no idea who makes it or what it's called. I use that with like a clone clone overdrive kind of thing and, and a couple of you know just just shoving whatever in there and i don't i don't overthink that stuff but it just tends to be like sometimes you just get something that's really cool that tends to really suit a track and then you know if it doesn't suit a particular song just throw it out you know um but yeah the the big mouth is huge and that's really brilliant for guitar recording as well um so I'll, I'll if i'm doing guitars i'll tend to get a lot more active on the kind of pedal chain and do quite often like a lot of real-time kind of pedal tweaks with a performance and stuff like that. And a very good record to listen to if your listeners are interested in that kind of thing. There, there's a Canadian band called Dizzy, and they have an album called Baby Teeth that I produced. 
Um, and there's a lot of kind of interplay between the guitarist and live pedal tweaking as that was going down, if that makes sense. What are some of your favorite electric guitar mics? SM57. Like, I honestly don't care about multi-miking stuff. If I get mixes with like four mics on the guitar, I'll tend to either bounce them exactly as they sit as they've bounced them and sent them over or um or i'll just keep the 57 like you know there, there's there's a ton of nice mics out there but i kind of i do really find and this is also like you know from from my own tracking over the years um you know we'll record with like two or three mics but it tends to be later on in a session it's almost like having unless unless you're making the decision at the moment and busting them down to like this is a guitar sound then it, it really does feel like that whole you're failing to make decisions and then I can make a way bigger difference um, just mix-wise with, with however I, I process them. I feel like it's a bigger difference than the actual mics themselves. Having said that, it is nice, you know, if, if, it's, if it suits the part to have room mics or whatever. Uh, that same band Dizzy I was telling you about, I'd actually built my studio in Montreal, uh, which is now uh, run by a group called Braids. But I built that studio to kind of the overall facility was a thousand square feet. I had a really big control room because I liked having a lot of people in the control room with me. Then a smallish live room that was super controlled, but you could open the door as a crack to a, a little hallway between the control room and the live room, which was my designer got the dimensions exactly right. So it sounded really good, but that was like a full on clanging echo chamber. So there's like a kind of two second reverb in this little hallway. So I'd have the guitars in the live room with the doors open, then have stereo room mics in that chamber. Um, and then, uh, you know, the close mic on the amp also going through a pedal chain. So, and I actually, I just produced a record for a band in New York called city of the sun who are all instrumental and the majority, not all of it, but the guitar sounds on that gets two guitars and percussion was actually a really wide pair of those Neumann hand grenade kind of microphones, you know, the German hand grenade microphones, CMV something. I just, you know, I, I tend to now when I go when I go into studios, if I, I just ask the assistants what their favorite mics are. I say, I need something smooth, I need something open, I need something chunky. And it's like, I, I kind of decided not too long ago like to not stress too hard on microphones. So, but that was really nice because their their whole thing is acoustic guitars through pedals through amps, set them up with the acoustics in the same room as the amps, and then kind of balance them acoustically and then had these super wide room mics. So you'd get a little bit of the acoustic stuff kind of bleeding into the room mics but predominantly it would be the signal coming out of the amp. And then I'd kind of fill it in a little bit with close mics if need be. Do you process a lot on the way in in terms of compression EQ? Um, in general, I'm very, very light on compression. Um, kind of almost religiously light on compression. Um, but I will be 100% honest, which is that, you know, unlike, say, your former guest, Al Schmidt, or I'm sure many of the people you're talking to who are like absolute brilliant gurus, it's like I... I tend to find myself in so many radically different recording situations that I haven't done day in and day out, if you know what I mean. So I just, I basically give myself an, an optimum degree of safety net. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's like I'll have, tend to have like one or two channels, you know, if it's drums, I might, I mean, it's kind of insane. Like sometimes I'll record 18 channels of drum mics and like use three or something like that. So I'll kind of throw a couple of wild ones in there. Uh, but in general, I try to keep things as clean as possible. And a really, really interesting thing I'm noticing more recently as well is that fewer and fewer studios actually have all their outboard and patch bay in really good kind of operating order. Um, so, you know, 
um, just keeping your signal path as clean as possible really makes it a lot easier to just troubleshoot and stuff like that. And, and again, that tends to be if I'm like more in kind of rapid fire situations. Um, but I was, I was actually doing some recording in London recently at one, two, three at Brett Shaw's place in Peckham. And he was engineering everything there and the way he used outboard was extraordinary. Um, but you know, he's kind of in his own room and is really like, has a really brilliant selection of pieces and he kind of really knew them inside out. Whereas, you know, I tend to like parachute into a studio and I'm kind of trying to figure out, you know, how the hell the song goes and who should be performing what and what the next thing is. And so if I'm engineering as well, then I just, you know, keep it simple kind of thing. Have you experimented with, uh, DIing guitars much? A little bit. Um, I think unless it's like a very specific effect we're going for, um, then I tend to not be too crazy about it. Um, the flip side is, you know, the, the studio I'm talking to you from right now is, you know, my room in LA is very, like, I don't have a separate recording space. So if we're working somewhere like this, then off we go, <laughs> plug it straight in. And, uh, you know, so I'm, and I'm I, more and more happier with, you know, the sounds that you can get out of digital stuff. Um, but yeah, it's really project specific. And, and in general, I really do love it if I'm working with guitarists who have a kind of sense of their sound, quote unquote. Like I'm very happy to dive in and start messing with pedals, but I feel especially with like really interesting kind of electric guitars, you want to know that there's a lot of the personality of the player that's coming into the tones and stuff like that that they're working with. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm happy either way, but haven't like actively been exploring that if that makes sense yeah do you have any standard ways of recording bass di <laughs> love a di bass and as little compression as possible um if you know if there does happen to be like an amazing amp then great like you know the ampeg bm B, uh, b15 bn15 bk50 they all classic one is great um i don't really have you know if there's like one of those big massive ampegs on eight by ten that's amazing um, but it, it really is interesting, the whole kind of physics of cabinets and rooms, especially by the time you get really into the low end, you know, the lower you go, obviously the more likely it is that there's going to be standing waves in the cabinet in the room that'll kind of affect your overall, the purity of your kind of low end. So, um, you know, DIs tend to work great. And, uh, you know, my big pro tip is I've done plenty of times recording through amazing kind of bass amps and bass chains then very often actually just having like a guitar rig version of that amp will, will actually sound way better in a mix. <laughs> just much more for like purity of low end. Do you know what I mean? And, and in terms of the way that like mix wise, I can really dial in the subs off those things to gel really well with everything. Um, but you know, in general bass, like simplest is bestest, unless you're going for something really, really specific, which is great. And you know, like actually that was one of the things Jim Abbas was fantastic at as well was really, really amazing bass sounds. And, you know, getting things driven in the right way. So, yeah. If you're kind of generally light on compression, are you relying on the master bus for more kind of controlling things? I, well, I tend, I tend, it's like tracking-wise, I'm light on compression in general. Um, Mix-wise, like everything is fair game. Um, but I definitely, you know, a few years ago, well, maybe, maybe five or six years ago, I very consciously started mixing in the box with like... I. It might sound weird, but I started training myself to have my monitor volume up like on full. So my speakers are going like incredibly loud, which made me kind of mix way quieter within 
Pro Tools if I'm mixing in tools. So I run like way, 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 way more headroom. And then I kind of found that the kind of cumulative effect of that and just using lots of little stages of kind of like harmonics and compression and stuff like that really had a huge benefit. Um, and so it, it's like now when kind of mixes are coming together, it tends to be by the time I don't really switch on my master bus stuff until like a mix is kind of like 80 or 90% of the way there where it feels like kind of all the decisions and what things need to like change or be modified to help everything not trip over each other, if that makes sense. Just just to make sure there's not like parts aren't conflicting where it starts to sound like a record. Then at that point, I'll tend to kind of like fire up my master bus stuff. Um, but no, I mean like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go crazy in the computer. Like, yeah, ridiculous amounts of need be kind of parallel stuff, um, you know, um, yeah. And, and, and again, I think that that's kind of, um, it is a nice thing just, God, I'm trying to think of the best way to express this. This makes a lot of sense internally to me, but I feel like in terms of the overall arc of producing records or like working with artists or getting the most out of them, especially when you're in time limited situations, the kind of window where you commit stuff, quote unquote, to tape has shifted or it's like it's you have this kind of whole middle area where there is a kind of a semi-permeable membrane, whereas it used to be like it's on tape and that's it. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I started back when tape was happening. And now it's like, well, we can kind of capture an idea. And then it's like at your leisure, you can kind of do, <laughs> do the, the kind of control room side of the engineering. So um, and, and by that, I mean, like just, you know, any like corrective stuff or any kind of like dynamic things that just hold things into the right place that they're supposed to be. So. I tend to work much more like when I'm engaged with personalities, it's really all about ideas and keeping momentum as much as possible. And then everyone knows that at some point I want to take stuff and sit down in my studio and I'll do like a bunch of editing. I'll put on a kind of a different brain, get out the slide ruler, so to speak, and then, you know, get into a lot more control and just make sure the things are kind of gelling. And then in a way, once all of those questions have been answered, then that kind of, you know, and, and any program or anything that kind of opens the door to, um, basically creative mix stuff if that makes sense yeah do you have any favorite plug-in compressors outside of the usual kind of 1176 la2 um i'm really i've been actually getting really into multi-band compression more recently and nothing flashy i'm just using the wave c6 a bunch but i've been i've always been really really into kind of the signal that you present to a compressor and i think a little part of why i tend to do less compression on the way in is because i i'm a really big fan of do you know the dmg equality eq no um it's really really good it's hyper kind of I mean, surgical sounds a little bit cold, but it's it's like it's got two high pass filters, a really brilliant low pass filter. The shelving filters or shelving bands can go through the entire spectrum, uh, and then really really good controllable mid range stuff. So I tend to use that a lot to correct any peaks and then to get the right tonal balance that I want to like quote unquote like like present to a compressor. So that's like you're you're giving the compression the right balance of the frequencies to respond to. Um, it's a little bit like back in the day, people would you know EQ a certain way to tape to get tape responding a certain way, then kind of almost like reverse EQ that on the way out. 
So I've got really into these kind of like corrective stages of EQing and multiband compression, just kind of balance out the frequency spectrum across a performance. Uh, and I use that a lot in conjunction then with clip gain um, so that, you know, you're not always using compression to try to control the dynamics of a performance, but more to kind of like emphasize aspects of the, you know, the envelopes and the tone of a part. And then once those layers have happened, uh, then it's really just like what feels best um, compression-wise. Um, I have I didn't use it for a long time after it came out, but I have actually really recently got into this late virtual mix rack distressor um, kind of clone. Um, I didn't really know what I was listening for on that one for quite a long time, but I'm really into that and that in combination with their kind of version of an SSL bus compressor, which it isn't quite the same, but you can use that one. And those guys, just nice combinations of your dry, wet blends, depending on the signal and how much dynamics you want to let through. Really love the um, all the UAD kind of versions of the LA-2As I really like. Like their, their old LA-2, I almost feel like there's never really been anything in the box that does sound like a hardware Fairchild, but in terms of like doing a little bit of that thing, that one's really nice on slow things. It, it, I almost feel like any, any LA-2 I've used in the box is almost more aggressive than outboard ones i don't know if that's me or just how i'm setting them up um and then i have become a massive fan of the uad manly very mew as well which does a kind of a nice kind of gooey thing and then you know it, there's certain times when it's like oh it's going to be all about like our compressor or something like that you know one of the old ways ones where you just want things really transparent but those tend to be the main grab bag and it really depends it's very much like a, a kind of a feel thing about which one's going to go on at whichever point. And then a, a lot of that is actually often dictated by the things that are happening in a mix and kind of what colors you want to use. So again, that's a nice thing about using um, EQs and multibands to kind of like correct and hold things in the right way. And then you can use your kind of digital things that do have a certain tone to them much more for, for kind of textural stuff as opposed to for, for corrective reasons. It's interesting what you say about the LA-2A because I've never gotten the chance to use a real one, but I've never gone on any of the plugins that I've used, versions of them. Never got on with them? Yeah, never yeah. found it's any use for them, really. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's funny. It's almost like the... I do really like the OAD ones, but I feel like they're different. <laughs> so I'll often use their, you know, the, I think it's like their silver one, I think is the most recent one. Like I'll, I'll tend to actually use that if I want a bit of bite on something. And then, it yeah, it's always like very kind of um, part dependent as well. But I, I don't know how this would defer to like working in the analog domain, but I do do a lot more kind of chaining of dynamics. And, you know, this one grabs a little bit off that side, and then that one grabs a little bit off that side, then cumulatively you get a certain sound out of it. So um, but yeah, no, it's interesting that you kind of find find the same thing. And again, I, I think that's, you know, I, I went through a really big kind of um, bratty phase in the late 2000s where I was like getting really pissed off about the fact that, you know, plugins would have like the faceplate of something outboard, but they don't sound the same. And, you know, it's like just because it has the just because it has, you know, an 1176 nit faceplate doesn't mean it's going to sound the same, like obviously. And then I really got over that and just started using my ears and, you know, asking like, well, what is it that this thing does? And, and a fascinating thing, like I was just mentioning with that distressor, is like very often it'll take you quite a long time to actually really get a sense of what a plug does, if that makes sense. So it's like it's interesting stuff that you don't always get on with, like 
try just popping it on different things every now and then and just, you know, every now and then it'll just go, oh, this is a thing that does that. And, you know, there's there's a few plugins. Um, actually, the Waves Kramer Helios thing is a really good example of this where I just use it in very, very specific circumstances because if you leave it flat, like right at the end of a mix, it seems to be that the mid frequency still i don't know if it like affects the phase or if it has some little peak and bypass or it does a funny thing but it's like when everything is basically done but you want something to just poke through a little bit more you put that one on flat and then just like you know so like the 2 2k 2.8 or 3.6 or something like that it'll just and this might be entirely psychological for me but it just feels like it just bites it forward a little bit and I've, I've used that trick in like mastering with emily lazar when we're mastering from stems and you know so I, I don't think i'm entirely on crack and imagining it but it's but it's it, it just wound up being that's that precise moment when you need it you don't want to necessarily do a more dramatic move you don't want to turn something up but you just want a little bit more bite or something to come through yeah because i know i know on the low end boost when you switch something in it does obviously boost the whatever frequency quite yeah. a lot oh yeah when you put it it just goes it's like yeah. totally different yeah, yeah. And that it's yeah, it's fascinating seeing, you know, just plugins actually having all these own little funny quirks and all that kind of thing. And like was is it a bug or a feature? I don't really know, you know. When you were talking about feeding compressors or kind of figuring out what you're feeding them, does that include side chaining them to other things or Um it in in general I tend to think of side chaining as being kind of a creative thing i mean obviously you know people will sometimes side chain low-end stuff for for sonic reasons but in general like the kind of frequencies you're presenting to the compressor tend to be a lot more about the way to control the dynamics of the sound itself <clears throat> and um you know vocals are a really 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 good example of that one obviously because it's like a tends to be quite a complex thing and you'll often have a big range but when a singer's at the bottom end of their register it's very easy for things to get all woofy. Um, but it's like if you just kind of cut out the low end in the wrong way, then obviously things get thin. But, you know, if you're... So it's a very interesting kind of question of controlling lower parts of the register so that they kind of will trigger the compression in a similar way to the mids. Obviously, there are compressors like the the Very Mew has a high-pass singer, the API. I used to use that... Um, the 2500 a lot and I actually built like some weird hardware combination of a version of the SSL mix bus compressor with the API 2500 sidechain with like the thrust and all that kind of thing spent forever making it and figuring it out how to mod it and then I used it on one mix and then like just carried on like <laughs> working in the box so <laughs> Um, so, you know, that, that I do find stuff that has like kind of more like tiltable or frequency selectable sidechains to be interesting um, and then if it's like side chaining off another instrument, then I kind of think of that again, like in a creative way. And then if I'm, I'm doing that, then obviously the kind of sound that is being side chained will still tend to have its own kind of dynamics and compression going on if need be. Uh, but really it's, it's about like kind of getting a sense of the interplay between like, you know, your attack times, the type of compression it is, whether that's kind of like a FET thing or, or a, or an Octo thing or a very new thing you know, how it's going to respond to a kind of limiter kind of world. So it's like knowing each of your compressors and how they grab things and then how you're showing at different frequencies to kind of to grab. And then also having a good sense of how that then plays off other things that are later on in your chain uh, and how they'll kind of bring out or compensate or balance out those different earlier tweaks. 
when you're using multiband compression, are you generally compressing pretty broad kind of strokes or are you doing quite specific frequencies? I'll, yeah, it tends to be very specific. So a lot of it is much more like mid and especially lower range control before compression. Um, I tend to like use dedicated DSs for DSing in combination with, you know, manually pulling down syllables. So I have that as one thing. But yeah, in general, it's especially controlling low end. That's not that's not like um, right across the board. And then if I'm, I'll often have stuff that catch kind of high mid, especially like kind of 2.8K seems to be some magic weird ass frequency later on in the chains. Um, but, you know, then there's always like something if, if there's, you know, something that's got a really big honky middle thing, then I'll tend to grab that a little bit. But in general, as you know, the higher the frequency, the faster the kind of little waveforms are going. So then suddenly kind of the faster you have to get your compression reacting and then you're kind of opening yourself up way more to kind of destroying the character of a sound or kind of like, you know, unwanted artifacts. Uh, but I do use quite a lot of, I've got built quite a few kind of um, setups, especially for like bass and low end stuff where I'll have like something multibanding up to like 40 or 60 hertz and something from like there up to 100, then something from, you know, that up to 200 or whatever just so that when you have parts that are kind of like moving through some notes, there might be one or two that just like bloom a little bit too much. And in general, those guys tend to be pretty slow. And then I'll still use something else overall to control the overall dynamics of a part or, you know, you use your slow attacks to kind of give things a bit more punch or whatever. Have you had much experience with mixed shootout kind of hiring jobs? Um, I, I've done a few in general i tend to feel that when you get asked like i'll just do a stuff on spec then it's like i feel like i'm in general i turn them down um not because i'm scared of my work but i find psychologically people tend to feel they're not invested in the process you know so i'll, I'll be i'll com completely happy to go on record and say especially at the start of a project like my mix ones aren't always winners but what i'm really good at is getting on the wavelength of my artists. <laughs> so it's like I, I really tend to mix very fast seconds, and then I want their perspective as soon as possible, and then we kind of like dial in their world. But yeah, I mean, I, I think um, I've just got, you know, far better things to do than just be running around kind of begging for work, if you know what I mean. And if I found consistently that people would uh, really come back to you and really give you their thoughts and your work on it together, then great, but it tends to be if people asking people to shoot out then they're at a point where they haven't made a decision themselves and they tend to kind of just be like messing around a little bit you know i've had people that have hired me for entire albums sight unseen we haven't done a certain a single thing and like we invariably absolutely smash it and destroy it and they walk away like delighted you know um so yeah so and then and again like mixing is only kind of a portion of my work um you know i do love it and there's a phase of my career where it was kind of like 70 percent of my work but at the moment, I'd, I'd far rather be like writing a song with someone than, you know, doing a mix on spec or something like that. But, you know, being in plenty of situations where a few people have mixed something and mine has been used. I've been in situations where the band wanted to use mine and the label wanted to use someone else's and someone else got used for political reasons or plenty of situations where mine wasn't chosen and someone else's was, was used as well. So, you know, um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting aspect of the industry how have you gone from more kind of technical aspects of recording to more kind of creative working with artists and writing and that sort of thing? I just, I honestly feel like I've just always done what I've done 
through my whole career and then just got whatever work I could get my hands on as a result. Um, so, you know, it's the, there's a lot of stuff that's not on my discography from when I first went freelance in London, which was, I was kind of one of the go-to people for like vocal tuning and performance enhancement stuff. And, you know, this was in the kind of, you know, deep in the zenith of the boy band era and that kind of thing. So a lot of the times I paid my rent by tuning boy bands, but at the same time, I was also like a silent member of Uncle and we had a residency at Fabric and we were doing crazy remixes and I was kind of using the same skills. In other words, being able to like shred and manipulate the fabric of space and time and kind of like, you know, do crazy automation and mix stuff um, to make wild club records. So I think, you know, for me, and, and, and I think that's also, if you're good at something technical, it tends to be an indication that you have a creative mind behind it and that you're looking at it from you know, a kind of a bigger picture that you can do technical things in musical ways. So I think much more it's just been a case of, you know, my, my discography has continued to grow and people have kind of just decided to have the faith in me, as it were. You know, but there, there's plenty of stuff that I did early on where I, I contributed hugely and it happens to be, you know, my role or, you know, I'd get a quote unquote Pro Tools credit on stuff like that, which in 1999 was like super exciting. Uh, and then, you know, like 20 years later, you're finding out like, when you know my management's been going through all my old registrations like none of that stuff is registered because no one recognizes that as a credit you know and uh you know so yeah i mean now ultimately i think you know it's it's a really it sounds like a bit of a californian cliche but like be yourself and just like do your thing and really try to help out as much as possible but i think if there's something that you know has probably kind of i wouldn't say set me apart but one of my biggest strengths is really just being able to listen to my artists um, and kind of get on their wavelength and, and really kind of adapt how I work uh, to kind of realize what it is that they're excited about. And then there's always like a case of figuring out each project or each artist has a different kind of threshold for how much they want you to contribute, if that makes sense. Do you know what I mean? Like some people, they really have their vision and it's like you kind of want to be almost like an instrument to their vision. Other people, they have like a kind of burning desire, but it's like they really need and want you to throw ideas into the ring that they can respond to um and then I'm, I'm never precious about my own ideas and you know if i give an artist 20 ideas and they don't use any of them but then that brings them to a point where they kind of get the right idea that they want then i see that as entirely valid so it's all about the whole process of kind of moving forward and not getting stuck on ideas or anything but ultimately like with technical stuff it's like you really just you know have to think of it anything with like engineering or, or whatever you have to think of it a little bit like you're kind of practicing scales as a musician so once it's kind of time to actually make the record that side is kind of as transparent as possible and you can just be like thinking about the end result or or, or you know making your moves to to keep everything moving forward have you noticed any big differences in recording culture in different cities and different countries? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I actually, I really miss working in the UK and I, I still, you know, I spent, I kind of came up in London as it were. You know, I lived, moved there when I was 19 and kind of left just before I turned 30. Um, I, I did a ton of traveling for sessions for kind of like nearly a decade, uh, kind of around my late 20s and into my 30s. But um, the kind of, what I really love in the UK is a combination of really, really good, solid, like you have your shit together, kind of like, you know, Abbey Road, old school kind of engineering uh, with the kind of way that like punk and rave culture and, you know, like the Caribbean influence had such a kind of huge impact on the mainstream. So it's, it's kind of, in, there's no real like dichotomy between 
being incredibly dialed and incredibly good at what you're doing and also kind of like tearing stuff down, if you know what I mean. Um, and the kind of the overall, the kind of understanding of like creative club music I love over there. Um, it's a kind of, it's interesting because when I moved to North America, it was also quite a different time in the recording industry, if you know what I mean. So, so when I settled over here, it was kind of post Napster, just kind of pre-streaming. So, you know, the kind of budgets that we had at the start of my career, you know, it's like we used to, we used to have four days at, you know, Metropolis to do a remix. Whereas now it's like, there's a $200 budget for a remix, you know? So, um, but I've found, you know, that the States is amazing in terms of like, there's an incredibly kind of positive attitude and a real like, yeah, man, let's do it kind of vibe, which I love. Um, and, but I haven't been as deep into working in a gajillion different studios in the States as I have in the UK. But, you know, like I, I've found assistants in the States. I've worked with some incredibly good ones who I'm like, you know, just want to kind of take off and have them work with me all the time. Um, but, you know, I, I think a lot of it more comes down to the different kind of um, cultural touch points, really. But, you know, every studio kind of has like an, an even and an 1176 and an LA 2A or whatever. Um, but, you know, it, it has been actually really interesting working in a couple of the more bling rooms in L.A., like in particular um, East West and United. Um, and just, you know, they not saying this isn't in the U.K. at all, but in general, like those are the first rooms where I've worked where it's like you talk to the assistant the day before about everything you want to do and I'll like ask them to recommend microphones for this and this and this and then you walk in in the morning and like everything is set up and you can get the most insane amount of stuff done in one day in one of those rooms whereas in like kind of cheaper studios you know it might be almost like three days work you can get done in one day in these rooms where you you know it's, you have your assistant who's on your session then like two other in-house assistants will come in and be setting everything up and you just have like this kind of incredibly well-oiled machine like manpower ready to go at all times um yeah. But actually, the one thing I read, you know, th there is a definitely like a difference in studio banter as well. Like, you know, Canada was really nice, but but it's a different sense of humor to the UK. So, you know, and different references of regional accents and stuff like that. You know, you can't really like bust out a Yorkshire accent to someone in Vancouver and expect that they're going to know the kind of nuance of what you're going for, you know. Have you noticed any physical differences in studios in different, different countries? I and mean, the big thing... It's it's more city to city. So, you know, like London and New York tend to be a lot more cramped for space, if you know what I mean. Um, God, physical differences. I, I mean, I, I think it's it's much more down to individual studio owners rather than like overall trends. I mean, there are obvious things like, you know, if you're working, I've worked in, you know, Mali and Africa and in Jamaica and it's, you can't just hop on Amazon you know, and, and have something turn up that afternoon if you need a certain piece of gear. So there's, you know, a little bit more of a kind of um, making do with what you have kind of mentality. Um, but otherwise, I mean, especially in this day and age, in the internet age, it's like everyone has access to the same information. You know, um, there's definitely the kind of prevailing wisdom if you're a gear sluts type person, which I haven't been for many years, but I, you know, certainly had a very valuable time for a while, you know, learning a lot on there and then testing things that I found on there and then actually seeing which ones made a difference to me and which ones I cared about and which ones I didn't. Um, so yeah, again, I think it's much more personality driven than, uh, yeah, than nation driven. But uh, have you ever read that, like recording the Beatles book? No, I, but the problem is cause it's like 300 pounds to get it anywhere. So I haven't. Right. Right. I was, I was lucky I got one of they when they first made it but that's like really fascinating when they talk about 
um, God, what were they originally using? I think like some modified version of Altex or whatever for compressors. And they talk about like when they first got a Fairchild. And I'm going to get this story wrong, but the basic gist of it is that they had one in the building for some insane amount of time while all the techs were trying it out before they even like put it in on a session. And I think, like, you know, more when we go back to the city, like a studio would have like two compressors. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And you would get the one that you could, you know, you'd have it all dialed and use it, you know. So when they got a Fairchild from across the Atlantic, it was kind of a huge deal, you know. So they, they weren't just kind of going on eBay and buying stuff up left, right and center, you know. So, yeah, it's, it's a lot like, you know, the way genres have kind of dissolved a lot more in music. I mean, there's still genres, but it's like being kind of cross-genre, having access to so many different influences is, is way more prevalent now. Um, I think that's all my questions. So thank you so much for speaking with me. All right, man. I, I hope that made a single shred of sense. <laughs>